Well, good morning, church. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament, about halfway through that part of the Bible. And so if you want to find your way there, Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we will find ourselves today. We started this book last Sunday. And so uh, if you're just now catching up with us, encourage you to go back maybe and listen to last week's message. You can find that online. Uh, but this week we are in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. As you find your way there, I want to begin reading there in verse 1. These are inspired words. These are words that the Lord gave for our good and for his glory. And so let's hear them as we read them together. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sembalat the Hornite the, and Tobiah the Ammonite, the servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and, I, and a few uh, men with me. And I told no one why my God had put into, what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but, one, but the one in which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in and how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates buried, burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tob Tobiah the Ammonite, servant 
and guests from the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, are his, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now for your help in understanding your word. Use it, Lord, in our lives to strengthen us that we may be faithful servants to glorify you in all that we do. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, there's a lot of discussion today around what the mission of the church is. What is missions? What is to be involved in missions? And we could say, when we take a, t- take a look at scripture, there's, there's not a verse that says, this is missions, or this therefore is the mission of the church. But when we read the Bible, we understand even in the New Testament, our calling as disciples, missions, broadly speaking, or the mission of God, broadly speaking, is what really could be summarized in the Great Commission there in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. We know that as God's people today, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Christ had commanded. And when you read the book of Acts, for example, you see that these disciples are gathered into local churches. And these local churches are equipped with leaders that the the process can continue to go forward. And so that's largely speaking what we're called to be as the church engaged in when it, when it comes to, to mission. But terms like mission or missional, they, they often get thrown around today as an attempt to describe what it is the church is to do or even missionary. You think about that word. And I think it's accurate to say that every Christian, that means every one of you who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, every Christian is to be, quote, on mission as we seek to evangelize the lost and make disciples. In that sense, we are called to be missional people. A missionary is someone who has received a specific calling to be sent out of their context to another context to serve for these same reasons. And so this idea that everyone, that every Christian is a missionary, I think is a, is, is kind of wrong. There are missionaries, those who are sent out of their context to other contexts. And so we recognize their vocational calling to be sent to do that particular work in another location elsewhere, whether that's cross-culturally or some other city, even here in our own nation. And so that being said, in one way or another, all of us though are called to be on mission, to be supporting, to be engaged in the work that God is doing through his people in the world. All of us are to be part of that. No one is to sit back as a mere spectator and say, that's what the church is doing. That's what, that, that's what the pastors do. That's what these missionaries do or church planters do. All of us have a role to play within this greater mission that God is doing in the world. Doesn't mean we're all missionaries, but it does mean we're all to be missionally minded and engaged. Each of us contribute uniquely to the, to the mission of God in the world. We all have different strengths. We've been given different gifts. We have different points of access, different opportunities. I often will say that, that most of you, the vast majority of you in this room have more opportunity to evangelize your neighbors and, and coworkers than, than Jeremy and I would. 
You, you're engaging, like we gotta go extra mile and work hard to get out there in the world, whereas you're interacting with hundreds of people perhaps in a, in a given day or week. And so all of us have a unique role to play with different opportunities and gifts and strengths. But regardless of how you take part in God's mission, there are common attributes, we could say, that ought to mark us all, regardless of the role in which we played, regardless in where we're able to engage using the different gifts in which God has given us. There are common attributes that ought to mark every Christian as we seek to be faithful to God's cause in the world. And I think a good place for us to see that is right here in the book of Nehemiah chapter two. Nehemiah had a clear calling of God, a, a clear role to play in the greater work of God's redemptive history. In the progression of God's redemptive narrative, there towards the end of the historical period of time in the Old Testament, as God's people were coming back from now from exile to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple and all of that, Nehemiah now has a peculiar role, a particular role to play within that purpose. And he commits himself fully to that role. Now, while the aim of his ministry, the particulars of his ministry are very different than what we would be called to today. We're not called to build walls. We're not called to build temples, although we're building a building. That's a tool, not a temple, okay? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We can get into that later, right? We're building, but our calling is different than Nehemiah's calling per se. The, the aim of our mission, the scope of our mission, we could say is different, but the nature of it, the characteristics, the attributes we could say look very similar. No matter what you're doing for the Lord, these are things that we're gonna see in Nehemiah's example, in Nehemiah's experience that ought to mark, mark all of us, whether you have a vocational calling to ministry or whether you're simply being a faithful ambassador and witness in your workplace and neighborhood. So I want us to see that, Nehemiah. Nehemiah demonstrates for us four ways as to how we can go about serving the Lord as we strive to fulfill our calling and responsibility in God's greater mission. So the text today is gonna to, going to, to show us how we go about the work. It's not defining exactly the what. We can talk about that later, and I've kind of hinted at that, that we're called to make disciples, get the gospel out, see churches planted, etc. But how do we do that? What's, what ought to be the tone of our, our approach, generally speaking? And this is applicable to, I believe, every single one of us today four ways each of us can go about serving the Lord as we strive to fulfill our calling and responsibility in the work God's called us to do. Let's look at them together from the text. First thing that we're called to do in the mission of God is to, to wait patiently. Now you wouldn't think that that would be the first place I would start, but we're called as God's people to contribute to God's mission and we do so as we wait patiently upon the Lord. In verses one and two, you see a hint of this. And we know back from chapter one that Nehemiah, he's the cupbearer of the king of Persia. He has, a, he has a, a plush job, right? I mean, can you imagine having his job? You just travel around with the king. He's in the king's winter residence of Susa, and he just sips the king's wine all day and, and, and just goes about his merry way. That's what he does for a living. I can't fathom what that would be like, but that's what Nehemiah's doing. But you know, as we continue to read through chapter one, that he's burdened by the situation back in Jerusalem. If you go back to the book of Ezra, we know that waves of exiles have gone back home. They've started rebuilding, but then due to threats around them from surrounding nations, they stopped the work. 
Nehemiah now gets word of that in chapter 1. His brother visits with a, with a few others, and they tell him the work of the, the Jerusalem. The people are in great trouble and shame, we're told. The work of the, the rebuilding of the city has stopped, though the walls are still broken down. The gates are burned. Jerusalem is not in a good state, and Nehemiah is grieved by that. He's overcome with grief. We're told that when he got word that it was the month of Kislev, verse 1, chapter 1, the month of Kislev, and so this is the Jewish calendar. And now look at chapter 2, verse 1. It's now the month of Nisan, or however you want to say that. Car, car manufacturers, they make you want to say Nisan, right? So it's, it's a different month. All you need to know is it's been about four months between chapter 1 and chapter 2, all right? It's been about four months. Four months have gone by since Nehemiah received word about Jerusalem. Four months of bearing this news, which, as we see in the text here, had taken a physical toll upon Nehemiah. He was no longer able to mask the grief that he had as he's dwelt upon this reality now for four months. It's obvious, even to the king, that Nehemiah is depressed, that he is overwhelmed with grief. Four months have gone by. King picks up on this, and he begins to inquire of Nehemiah. We know that Nehemiah knew, if you go back to chapter 1, look back at the prayer that he prayed even in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Nehemiah knew something had to be done. He, he prays to the Lord for the Lord to remember the word, to, 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 to remember the promises that he had. He's praying for God to do something in Jerusalem. This can't stand and it can't stand, Lord, because of your promises, he's saying. So he knew something had to be done. He felt like even a call of God to, to, to take part in this restoration, but he had to wait until the time was right. It's not as if he gets word, Jerusalem's in deep trouble, he's overwhelmed with grief, he prays for a few days fast and says, let's go, let's go rebuild it. Now, this is four months later, and he's still dwelling on this. He knew that Jerusalem was in a very difficult situation, and yet here he was, the cupbearer of the king of Persia. And he knew that if he mishandled this matter, that the king could have him killed immediately and keep Jerusalem as it is. So he had been prayerfully waiting for the right time to step up to the plate to address this need with the king. You think about waiting for the right time. Waiting on the Lord can be a difficult thing to do, especially when we are passionate about something. You ever experienced that? You're very passionate about something. You're convicted that something needs to happen, but God has you now in a, in a pattern of waiting. That can be difficult. It was in an article entitled, Reasons God Calls Us to Wait, that Paul Tripp said, processes and people are all affected. Everything and everyone has been damaged by the fall. We must wait because in a world that is broken, everything we do is harder and more complicated than was ever meant to be. Not only that, he continues, he says we must wait because we are not writing our own personal and ministry stories. Life does not work the way we want it to in the time in which we want it to. You and I do not live in the center of the universe. 
That place is occupied by God and God alone. I think he has a lot of wisdom there as to why it is at times God may have us wait. This is not our story. This is God's story, God's writing, God's accomplishing. It's God's work that he's doing. And sometimes in our excitement and anticipation, we want to go headlong into something and God has us in a pattern of waiting because his purposes are much greater. His timeline will be different. Sometimes serving the Lord requires us to wait. And we know, all of us know that how difficult that can be. I, I, I don't know a I don't know anybody that's good at waiting. Some of you are better at it than others, but no one is great at waiting. But waiting on the Lord requires us to enter into a posture of humility. It's something we should eagerly embrace, not in a lazy kind of calloused way. Waiting is to be active. It's an active dependence upon the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is not a waste of time. It's actually an important investment of your time. You can get ahead of the Lord. I just think about, uh, just for example, I told you last week, Nehemiah has nothing to do with what we're doing over there building a building. But as I think about that building, when we came here is now over 10 years ago. When we first came here, one of the first things in the first six months that kept coming into my mind was like, we need to get a building. That's 10 years ago. You know, and had we explored and pursued a, a new building at that time, or even in the first two or three years of being here, we were nowhere close to being ready for that. You know, while it was an exciting thing to think about, to dream about, to pray about, to, to, to justify even, here we are all of this time later where God has brought us to the right point, the right place at the right time to do just that. Waiting's difficult. Maybe the Lord has you in a period of waiting right now and you're struggling with that. You're struggling with waiting on God. Friend, understand that God's timeline is always best. I'm a hypocrite for saying that, right? Because if anybody struggles with waiting, it's me. But his timeline is best. I have to remind myself that God's ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. And his timeline is sitting in the text. But his timeline isn't my timeline. We have to wait on him. Use this time of waiting as an opportunity to invest in your relationship with God, in your relationship with those he's, he's put around you. Or maybe, maybe you don't handle waiting very well and you've tried to run ahead of the Lord and therefore have grown sinfully frustrated or sinfully anxious. Maybe this is a, a reminder to you and a call to you to confess that and to repent of that. Trusting the Lord's timing. Nehemiah was in a pattern of waiting. Yes, it was four months and it was still gonna be a while longer before, we don't know exactly how much longer it was, before he actually went to Jerusalem, but he was waiting on the Lord. He didn't run ahead of the Lord. He waited patiently as he sought to engage in the mission of God. We too should wait patiently, but don't use waiting as an excuse to do nothing. Leads me to the second point. Not only should we wait patiently when the time is right, when God's made it clear, we should advance boldly. You see that in verses three through 10. 
Once the king inquired about Nehemiah's depressed state, Nehemiah moves on ahead with his plan and he's, he's bold before the king. I mean, remember, he's cupbearer of the king. This is the, the most powerful person on the planet, humanly speaking, king of Persia. Greatest empire in the world, the guy's in charge of it and Nehemiah serves him. And he's about to ask him for permission to go back to his homeland to help rebuild a city that he loves. So he moves ahead with his plan and he's bold, but his boldness is not a boldness that tries to steamroll his way forward with the king. His boldness is tempered with some key characteristics that I think are important for us to see here as we think about being bold in advancing the cause of God in the world. First of all, I want you to note that it's a respectful boldness. He understood, Nehemiah understood and he respected his relationship with the king. Remember, he's a devout Jew, Nehemiah. He's a devout Jew, but he's a devout Jew living in a pagan land serving a pagan king. And yet he respected the authority of King Artaxerxes. He knew the king had total authority, that the king could, could make a, an edict and have him killed immediately. So he's not trying to undermine or work around his authority, but actually through it. He knows just how much control and human power the king had, and he seeks to honor him and his place of authority as he makes his request. Even in verse three, as he responds to the king, as the king says, why, why are you sad? He, he, he now begins to make his request known, but the very first thing he says is, let the king live forever. Let the king live forever. He's not being fake. This is not just throwaway words to kind of butter the king up. He, he means it. He's honoring the king as I'm sure they likely had a very good working relationship. Nehemiah, I think, helps us, teaches us an important lesson that even as God's people, we are to be bold in serving God's purposes, but we can do that in a way that's respectful to earthly authority, even authority that may have very different worldview than we do. He's working, Nehemiah's working within God's ordained structure of authority not contrary to it. And I think that's important for us to see that, to have a respectful demeanor, to have a respectful approach to God-given authority in the world, even if we don't like what that authority may think or do at times. We should honor that, be respectful to that, etc. But I want you to notice the second attribute of this, this boldness. It's a prayerful, a prayerful boldness. Look at verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said to the king. Notice the, the order there of that. The king asked him, what do you want? What request are you making? And Nehemiah, he gives one of those, those quick throw up kind of prayers like, Lord help. Some of the best prayers we can pray are, are very one word, two word kinds of prayers. Once Nehemiah shares in verses three and four, what has caused him to be so grieved, so depressed, 
The king asked him what he's requesting. And, and again, this is the moment Nehemiah had been waiting for four months at least for. It was a potentially risky moment for him. His life could have been at stake here. Even Jerusalem's walls and, and temple and, and what's going on in Jerusalem was somewhat at stake here. This was a risky moment for Nehemiah. And as, as he begins to respond, the very first thing he does is he prays to the Lord of heaven. Shows us again just how committed to and dependent upon the Lord Nehemiah is. We know that Nehemiah is a man who knows God's word. He's a man who spends much time in, in private prayer. You, you've seen the example of that already in chapter one in verses five through 11. You've seen how he prays. And now in the presence of the most powerful man on the planet, before he speaks to that king, Nehemiah prays once again. What we see here is, is how Nehemiah's private devotion spills over into his public life. The kind of Bible-saturated praying we see in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1 is the type of praying that will hold us fast in those moments of trial and challenge. The strength of our hearts, you, you need to understand this, that the, the, that the strength of our hearts before the Lord is not so much seen in the length of our prayers as it's seen in the frequency of our prayers. How often are we seeking the Lord's help, the Lord's wisdom, the Lord's guidance? Brothers and sisters, if we are going to walk forward in boldness to accomplish God's purposes in this world, then we must walk as a people who depend on him through prayer. We will not live bolder than we pray. Our boldness is informed, it is, is, it is compelled by, it is, it is strengthened and upheld through our prayers. Nehemiah models that for us. But not only is it a prayerful boldness, it's an informed boldness, an informed boldness. In verses four through eight, we see this. Specifically, beginning of verse five and following, Nehemiah responds to the king. And through this discussion, we see that the king is favorable to him. Nehemiah is about to make these, these requests, multiple requests. But again, Nehemiah's request, through these requests, he, he understands the context he's living in. He understands the king's authority and power, and he's working within that framework. So what do we mean by this informed boldness? Well, first of all, he's informed as he's mindful of God's hand upon his life. In verses five, six, and seven, we see how Nehemiah makes his request. He actually makes multiple requests. He requests to go and rebuild Jerusalem, verses five and six. And then verse seven, he requests for letters to be given from the king so that as he goes out from the region he's in, down as he moves south in towards, towards Judah, that he wants these letters from the king to allow him passage from the other governors that would have been there in that day and time. Basically, handwritten permission from the king himself for him to advance on to Judah. And then notice in verse eight, he even makes a request for help from the king's chief forester, asking for resources, for timber, 
to help him rebuild the temple and the gates and his own place that he will live. So Nehemiah just doesn't ask to go back to Jerusalem. He asks to go back for the king to grant him protection as he goes back and for the king to grant him resources to to make the, the project go forward. And then look at what happens in verse eight. Nehemiah says, and the king granted me what I asked. And then he gives the reason why that happened. The king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. You see, Nehemiah had a good theology. He had a good theology of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Most of the time, we we tend to, to err one way or the other on that, but Nehemiah understood God's sovereign. He he understood that God rules the the nations, that God even rules the hearts of kings. And yet that God even does so through, God uses people. He worked through the human channels that were before him, but he did so in reliance upon the Lord. He respected the king's authority, but he also knew that it was the God of heaven that could move the hearts of the king. Brothers and sisters, a reminder for us that we can serve the Lord's purposes boldly because we know, we know that it's God who moves mountains and brings about his will. He's the one that moves and shapes the hearts of kings and rulers. It's a boldness that allows us to, to take risk as we pursue things we never thought imaginable because we're aware that God's hand is at work in this world. Nehemiah was mindful of this. He was mindful that it was the good hand of God that was upon him that was granting him access to go back to the city, but it was through the, 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 the heart, the, the God working in the heart of the king to grant him that favor. He wasn't trying to work around the king. He was working within that system, trusting the Lord to do what the Lord could do. He's mindful of God's hand, but he's also mindful, he's informed, mindful of the opposition that he would face. In verses nine and 10, we see that as he makes his way on down towards Jerusalem, he finds and encounters some people who were opposed to him. Sanballat, governor of Samaria, and Tobiah, another official, and neither of them were happy about Nehemiah's mission. We, that's, that's clear. We see that in verse 10, don't we, at the very end? It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Displeased them greatly. See, the rift between the Jews and the peoples around them had only grown larger, and Nehemiah was not a welcome sight. In fact, they're going to make their protest crystal clear in verses 19 and 20. But Nehemiah knew this. He knew that he was going to face opposition. That's why he had asked the king for letters of permission as he, as he sought to travel. He knew that this was not going to be an easy task. He was aware his boldness was informed by the fact that God's sovereign, but also that people were going to stand opposed to him. We see this throughout all of the Bible, but yet this is another reminder that there will always be opposition to the work of God in the world. Always, always has been, always will be till Jesus comes again. And so if you're waiting on the world's permission to serve God, it will never happen. 
We are called to serve the Lord's purposes, understanding there will be opposition. There will be persecution. There will be hostility. But one of the reasons we we need a God-given boldness is because serving the Lord in a world that rejects him and rejects us will not come easy. Taking a stand for what is right and good and holy will not be well received by a world that stands opposed to God and his ways. Our boldness, as we go forward in boldness, we, we, we need to understand the sovereignty of God, the, the power of God, but yet we need to also recognize there will be people who will stand in our way and push back. A third thing that we observe here as we think about being on mission with God and learning from Nehemiah and how he went about the specific calling he had, we're called to number three, engage strategically. Look at verses 11 through 18. Engaging strategically. In verse 11, we see Nehemiah finally makes his way to Jerusalem. Just kind of mentions that there, doesn't he, in, in passing? It's kind of, oh, so I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. It's kind of not very dramatic at this point. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. After all of this, he finally makes his way to Jerusalem. Finally arrives to see for himself the state of the city, to see the people, to see the, the broken down walls and the gates that were burned. But he does not ride into the city in some triumphant fashion as if he's there to save the day. He's calculated and careful as he proceeds to the work that God has called him to. Again, our, our contribution to the mission of God will look different regarding the specific task in which we've been called to do, the way that we go about our task. But again, we see some common features as we watch Nehemiah go forward in the calling that God had given him. I want you to see several things here about this strategic engagement. First of all, God's work is motivated by conviction. You see that in verse 12. God's work is motivated by conviction. He says, then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And then notice what he says. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Don't want you to go running past that verse. Now, this doesn't mean that as we go about serving the Lord that we're called to do that secretly. The point that you should see here is that Nehemiah is in Jerusalem because God had put that on his heart. God had called him to do that. God had given him a sense of conviction and calling to go back to Jerusalem and do what he was going to do in the rebuilding of the city. He's talking about what his God had put into his heart to do for Jerusalem. His presence and involvement in this rebuilding effort was ultimately due to God's work in his own heart. Brothers and sisters, we need to keep that in mind. That through knowing God's word, as Nehemiah models that, through knowing God's word and by seeking the Lord in prayer, God will make clear to us our place in his global mission. And we need to pursue it. God calls all of us to participate. Some he will call vocationally. Some of you he will call to pastoral ministry or to some other full-time ministry. Maybe some he'll call, prayerfully so, 
to, to go to the ends of the earth and serve as missionaries in some place. Others he will call simply for you to remain where you are to be faithful witnesses and ambassadors for Christ as you work and as you serve and as you raise a family right here in this context or community. The point is this, do not ignore his calling on your life. Do not ignore what it is that he's burdened your heart to do for the sake of his name and the place in which he's called you. Friend, I would just ask you, just, just to wrestle with this, what is it that God has put into your heart to do for the advance of his kingdom? Every person in this room that's a disciple of Jesus Christ needs to have an answer to that question. What is it that God has put into your heart to do for the glory of his name? See, God's work is motivated by a sense of conviction and calling, but number two, God's work, as we see here, also requires much wisdom. God's work requires wisdom. Verses 13 through 16, Nehemiah surveys the destruction of the city walls. He goes about under the cover of darkness, kind of observing and seeing. Hadn't, hadn't mentioned, he hadn't told anybody he's in town. He's not told the priest, not, most of the Jews don't realize why he's there, what he's doing. He's just simply going around and observing to see kind of the lay of the land. What, what's, what's true here in Jerusalem? He takes the time to assess the situation and the task that was before him. Just reminds us that God's work requires wise planning. Hard work alone does not guarantee success in the mission that God has called us to. The hard work of serving in the mission of God requires much wisdom and evaluation as we go about the task that he's called us to serve. Notice he goes about this in a way as to not draw unnecessary and premature opposition his way. He said he told no one in verse 12. And then he gives some very specific details as to what he does in verses 13 through 16. And again in verse 16 he says, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. He's in assessment mode. He's evaluating. He's, he's understanding the, the situation that's before him. He's careful but he does move forward with the work. He shows us the importance of taking a measured approach to the work that we do for the Lord. Oftentimes, and I think this is something we need to keep in mind, often, out of a sense of zeal, God's people can sadly do more harm than good. Without understanding their context or the opposition, a well-meaning Christian can put the heart cart before the horse and do more damage than good. You need to understand your context if you're going to have success in kingdom work. Oftentimes we talk about this, this idea of contextualization. It's important. Doesn't mean we're changing the message. The message is the message. The gospel is the gospel. The truth is the truth. But how we go about advancing that in certain places and how we go about accomplishing the work of God needs to be carefully thought through. We need to do the hard work of understanding our context and understanding the place in which God has called us so that we can best engage it. God's work requires wisdom. Number three, God's work is accomplished by God's people. Nehemiah doesn't keep the fact that he's there a secret very long. 
Verse 17, we see, then I said to them, all the people that he just mentioned, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are now in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them that the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So after Nehemiah surveys the scene and he now understands what has to be done, and that's going to require the people being unified in the work. He reminds them that this is God's city. Verse 17, he reminds them that this is God's city and that God's name was at stake here. He's, he's, he's pointing that out there by implication. You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem, God's city, the, the people, the place in which God's worship was central, lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. They needed to be reminded it, and they needed to rebuild the city so that they would no longer be this disgrace. So he motivates them out of this sense of vision and calls them to serve the Lord, and they all commit. It says they strengthen their hands to do the good work. Think about what they committed themselves to. This was a massive project. One that God had stirred the heart of Nehemiah to lead, and they would rebuild the walls in the city. That's what would happen. But you think about the work that they did and the work that we're called to today. It's different. We're not called to build walls and build cities and build temples. We're called to go and make disciples of nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. That's what we're called to do. And in that sense, gospel work is a better work than what the people of Nehemiah's day were committing to. Now, this was an important work. It was important for their time and in their place in which God's redemptive plan was unfolding. But you think about the work that we're called to. Our commission has been made clear. We're to go and make disciples. We're to baptize. We're to teach. And all of us have a place in that work. Yes, we're going to stand opposed in that work. Yes, we're going to, 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 to run into difficulties and challenges in that work. But yet that's what we're called to do. And all of us have a place in it. And when we have the right motive, which is God's glory, that God's name would be on display, coupled with the sense of a right mission to make disciples, then we can go forward patiently, boldly, and strategically to advance this cause in the world for the glory and praise of God. But there's one more, one final characteristic we need not miss, and we see that in verses 19 and 20. says in verse 18, the last sentence, look at verse 19. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us. There's the opposition. And said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? But Nehemiah responds, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. 
Nehemiah knew that he had challenges ahead, including the opposition that he faced, yet he trusted the Lord to pave the way forward. See, back in Ezra, opposition came up and the people froze and they quit the work. Now we see the same thing happens. Opposition rises up against God's people as they seek to advance his purpose. And Nehemiah is not having it. He's like, the good hand of my God is upon me and upon these people. We've been called to build and that's exactly what we're going to do. And you have no portion in this matter. I think his response was vital for the encouragement of the people. He didn't speak about the king's authority this time. What he spoke about was his trust in the God of heaven. He advised the people to rise and work, and he left no room for compromise with the opposition, and he denied them any share in the work. At the end of the day, what we see is Nehemiah trusted the Lord to move the heart of the most powerful king on the planet, and he trusted God to preserve them. He knew that if God had got him this far, he was going to get him all the way. He's trusting God in God's sovereignty to preserve them against any opposition so the city could be rebuilt. Brothers and sisters, this is the perspective we too must keep in mind. There will be just about anything you can imagine that will try to discourage you from taking part in God's work in this world. But we must keep our eyes on the God of heaven, on the Lord, who has called us, equipped us, and commissioned us. And we must serve him with a confident trust that despite what we might face in the world, he will lead us forward and his glory will be known among the nations. The assignment that we have in the global mission of God's work looks very different than what Nehemiah's assignment was. Now, brothers and sisters, the motive behind what we're doing is the same. Nehemiah was compelled because he was compelled out of a sense of advancing the glory of God, seeing the glory of God reestablished in Jerusalem. He desired Jerusalem to be a place where God's glory was on display as the people returned and sought to live out their covenant responsibilities as they worshipped him. We too are compelled to see the glory of God on display, but not simply in one city. Our aim is to see God's glory on display in every city and town and nation, among every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. To see the gospel of Jesus Christ go forward in power. To see disciples made, churches planted, communities transformed by the values of the kingdom of God. And our contribution to all of that is one that's important for each and every one of us. Yes, it will look different based upon the giftings and the callings that God has given every single person. But the goal is the same. And how we go about that is the same. That engagement, that participation in that mission involves waiting patiently, advancing boldly, engaging strategically, and serving confidently because God is sovereign. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for helping us understand how it is that we're to go about the work that you've called us to. The specifics of that work, Lord, will often look different. Yes, the the mission is the same. Yes, the message of the gospel does not change. It is the same. The, The truth is the truth. And yet you gift each of us 
in different ways. Some of us are, as, as you explain the, the, the different gifts in the, in the church, as you, as you illustrate that in the example of a human body, Lord, some of us are arms and some are legs, some are heads, some are, some are feet. Lord, we all have a different role in which we're playing, but Lord, the, 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 the aim is the same, your glory, your gospel. See lives transformed. Lord, as we give ourselves to this purpose, would you help us to understand these characteristics and these attributes that should mark each and every one of us, and even us as a church, as we walk forward in faithfulness, that we would be a people who are willing to wait patiently, to use that time wisely. But Lord, that when the time comes, we would not be afraid to advance boldly, to, to, to go with an informed boldness, understanding that you're sovereign and that you're glorious and that you're powerful, understanding that we do have an opposition, but that should not cause us to shy away from the task at hand. So Lord, help us. Lord, help us be strategic in our work. Lord, to be wise, to be prayerful. Be confident, Lord, as we go about our serving, knowing that you're with us, that you're present, that you're powerful, that you're, you're, you're at work. Lord, you're calling us to do these things, and you will pave the way forward. Help us, Lord, we pray. Father, convict us where we have been negligent in this mission. Convict us where we have maybe been sinfully negligent. And call us, Lord, forward in obedience to you. Father, would you renew us today? Would you strengthen us as we think about being on mission with you, the work that you've called us to be part of? Would you help us, Lord, to give ourselves well to the calling that you've given us? That you would indeed be praised, that the gospel would go forth in power, that lives would be transformed, churches would be planted and strengthened, that the ends of the earth would be places on which your glory is on full display. Father, help us to that task, to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.